Hiya, welcome to another Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability and the built environment. So, part two of our shading series with returning guest Tom Dollard of Pollard Thomas Edwards Practice. He's head of sustainability there. And we've been talking with him about, well, coming on to talk about the Good Homes Alliance design guide for shading that was published uh, quite late last year. Um, do check it, download it. It's brilliant. So with this episode, we had intended to talk more about the guide itself, but on reflection and having looked at the guide a bit more closely, we realized that we didn't need to, or rather that'd be a waste of time. There's no sense in us just describing what's in it. Like it's a, a brilliant piece of work. So just read it. In the end, we spent more time discussing the state of the industry in relation to, to shading and overheating now how it needs to change, why it's struggling to do so. so you know, culture, economics, politics, and the built environment, the usual. Uh, it's a heavily UK discussion, as you can imagine, because those were the conditions in which the research was created. But, I mean, come on, they're pretty much analogous for a great deal of Ireland, North America, and probably great swathes of Europe too. So the conversation starts with a discussion of our experiences on social media and the internet informed by our professional lives. Now, there is a thread of the shading subject underpinning the conversation throughout. We do get to addressing the shading subject directly, although it might feel like we take a while to get there. But if you can't be bothered listening to us talking about social media, outrage, and a debased information age, you can jump forward. About 17 minutes from the end of this intro. Just to be clear, we chose to explore this because like, Tom's received outrage and grief online for posting about overheating and shading rather than the other uh, large issues of the day. And this is in spite of a person like him being a prolific poster on all of this stuff for well over a decade. So yeah, if you don't want to listen to it and you're just here for the building stuff, jump forward, 17 minutes. All the links are in the show notes. Thank you for joining us. Hope you enjoy it. Cheers. So I'll, I'll turn my filter off, my PC professional architect <laughs> consultant filter off, and we'll just act like we're in the pub. You know yeah. what? We've, it's a funny yeah. thing, actually, because you find people. I was just thinking, there's a terrible American is it a uh, clip show? Uh, I don't know if, even if it's real or if it's something I heard through the Simpsons called like "Kids Say the Darndest Things." Yeah, and uh, yeah. The re- that's a reality actually in in among adults now. Uh, not in terms of the darndest. I mean, uh, outrageous things or or unacceptable. Oh, you find people who you think you agree with on so many areas, and all of a sudden, you know, you you veer slightly into the wrong territory, and you realize that they've got horrible. You know, my God, you're you know, you build the green buildings, but you're actually a secret Nazi. It's sort of, you know, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> I don't mind that. I I don't mind that. I think that's good for society. I think people shouldn't hold back. I think there's been centuries of people keeping quiet when they should have just spoken their mind. What I do mind is people's kind of principle that they have a right to be outraged at everything. I have I have I have a human right that you know not to be offended. So I think it's gone too far that way with the whole culture wars and yeah the mess that we're in with this polemic, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, black, white argument across our whole society. I think that's, that is more it depends, dramatic and people limits, speak in their mind. So fine, go speak your mind. Too. I think the interesting thing about the, the outrage is outrage can be justified. So, you know, like. When yeah. you don't want to hear someone being grotesquely racist or homophobic or sexist. Mm. The the peculiar thing now has been the experience of people 
facing public opprobrium for being like that's the bottom line and like the the outrage at like i should not have to face the consequences of my actions yeah like which is something you encounter particularly within the broadsheet press or the tabloid press where who is it like oh what's the name uh oh clarkson we'll just have a go on clarkson with his yeah whatever you think about Meghan markle she isn't what she said he said she was and she doesn't deserve to be pilloried like what's her face out of game of thrones that was oh the queen paraded through the streets naked yeah yeah yeah, yeah stop yeah the, for whatever sins she might have like not being a good podcaster that's one and being a terrible tv producer like that's another like and, you know being a royal as well like i i, I would take the position of being an anti-monarchist but like whatever yeah like she didn't deserve that sort of opprobrium and it doesn't sit without her being part of a cultural context so like he deserved to face the consequences of those actions much as he deserved to face the consequences of lamping his producer because he didn't have a hot steak ready for him when he got home and and the racism the racist chat on on top here as well you know uh against asian people and so on i am what i was going to say was that uh i was getting it was in a taxi going to i think it was a q-tip gig actually out of nowhere the taxi driver uh, started talking about um, how women shouldn't have to get into taxis that have black drivers. And he, <laughs> yeah, and and he um, he he made some sort of a, th- a comparison. You know, uh, he he said it's like um, taxi drivers getting into an old banger versus a Mercedes. They should have the option. And so we all went absolutely crazy <laughs> at him. Um, and uh, I insisted that we stop the taxi. And insisted that we pay him as well so that he knew that we were not just, you know, it, there was no way he could kind of claim the high moral ground by saying, oh, well, they, you know, I uh, took them halfway there or whatever. And they, and, uh, and they were looking for a free ride or whatever. But the look on his face of, of complete disbelief that somebody had, had, uh, had actually said something, because the normal thing in these situations is just, just to, a nod. Yeah. Yeah. Just to nod. And, and yeah. Just, yeah and keep quiet away. and just move on. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I don't know. It's very rare you challenge. You get challenged. It's very rare that people have the gumption, the balls to to challenge someone like that in a in a social environment. And it's really important. And I think I guess my observation is that in certain circles that's gone too far. And I think people are just ourselves just challenging each other on on the details of whether thump something is a thermal bridge or whether it's you know thermal bypass. Like guys, come on, please. You know, or you know. What, what I had on LinkedIn the other day. Why are you researching overheating? Everybody knows we don't have overheating. It's all about heating in this country. We're all cold and then we've got fuel poverty. Why aren't you spending your time researching that? It's like, yeah. hmm. Oh, right. Interesting. I, it's kind of level of outrage that comes from me posting something on LinkedIn. Um, and Twitter's even well, X is even worse. You get you know, all sorts of crazies coming out saying, anti-climate change and questioning you on on basis of of um you know absolute you know terrible stuff so yeah i've tended to withdraw from social media an awful lot over the last few years because oh because of that yeah yeah it's horrible and um i I don't want to it's it's that or it's the the navel gazing the kind of um you know there's some really there's people i tend to lurk like a like a like a a, uh yeah uh, like (laughs) Uh, like a pervert, like, yeah, like a pervert in the in the in the shrubs, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
Um, I uh, no, I tend to just l- to listen to what people are s- saying and 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 that uh, you know. But actually engaging, it's so hard to do. It's just it's uh, it's, it's really difficult. So, there's so many unknowns of um and mix mix ups, and it's actually for a, for a media platform that's set is meant to be cutting edge and well, it's obviously not, but it's meant to be the kind of future. It's really basic and it's so unsubtle. You know, you're, you're posting on stuff that you've got a link to on the internet, a report you've done, and then someone's writing a one-line comment on what they think or a thumbs up or or repost. Now, does a repost mean you believe in it? You know, do you, are you agreeing with that subject if you repost or you like? And then you get all sorts of arguments based on one-line replies over days sometimes, and then it's there forever. That's that's you, the you engage thing. a lot of those, Tom. Do you? Do you? I, I, I used to. Uh, I used to get upset when, you know, I don't know. Um, the odd architectural journalist or someone would say it would either try and tear you down or not, um, or or some crazy would come in and question you. And then I just thought, yeah, I'm not I'm not gonna engage. So much less. But I have been finding LinkedIn as a very good tool for just research and actually just knowing what everybody else is doing. And I know it's it's very kind of self-congratulatory and uh, sycophantic in many ways, yeah. but I think that being said, it's still a great way to know what's going on in the world. Like the the access you have to people's thoughts, what events they're going to, what research they're doing, what projects. In other words, finished. you like having people blow smoke up your arse. Yeah, fine. Uh, <laughs> well, there's that as well, but no. <laughs> Uh, it's more from what other people are doing. It's actually the obvi- it's actually the opposite. I think. Um, you know, you like blowing uh, smoke up people's arses. I, I like finding out what other people are doing. Yeah, I know it's great. Yeah, LinkedIn is is as a voyeur. Describe, but it's but it's a useful tool. Yeah, and sure. it's unfiltered journalism. At the end of the day, there's no one there's no one objective, and it's a challenge to the the, the mainstream media because of because I of that. Call it journalism. No, it's, well, you would it's, it's not. To. It, it's of course obviously journalism has that objective one person filtering that information that data and giving you a viewpoint on it this is multi and that's this is where it's quite exciting and whether whether there's tools that i've had very little experience in but things like mvivo qualitative data analysis where you can you can basically download you know a thousand tweets using the hashtag overheating and you can then use thematic analysis you can autocode it you can use thematic analysis to tell you what are people talking about when they when it comes to overheating this sort of like big data analysis of inputs like twitter like linkedin what are people talk, uh, like next door you know what are, what are people in certain i can i can use next door download all the all the um posts on next door put it into mvivo theme it in terms of a city if i'm if i'm designing a new part of a city like cambridge we're doing currently i can basically see what are people in in cambridge saying about that area um in the last year uh, and then I can code it on whether it's a positive thing, a negative thing, and it'll do that automatically. It's got an AI capability; it can it can tell whether a tweet is negative or positive. And then you can you yourself as a researcher can then come in and code that whether it's talking about um, overheating or is it energy bills, or is it just that they don't like the council or what it is. And then you've got some very rich data based on that level. But it takes a lot of analysis. It's not like a level of interviews like we're having now where you can really get into the depth of or in person focus groups or things like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think the benefits of social media are great. But yeah, health and kind of mental well-being for the people using it especially if you're on it every day and every hour and no yeah the thing that troubles me most about about 
social media. And uh, admittedly, I'm seeing it. Like, I, I hear the horror stories as well with Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it, uh, from uh, female journalists since they've reduced the moderation and so on. I don't see that side of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, the same with the kind of the heart, the, the, the hate, uh, you know, the, the threats and intimidation and stuff that, that, that a lot of kind of prominent female um, journalists and, and, you know, just no, it's the way he hesitated over calling them journalists. <laughs> God, the misogyny in him, Jesus Christ! Yeah, yeah. But the problem I have is, is um, it's it's the fact that that you can see this becoming manifest in our culture now. People who are they're consuming their me their media effectively, and they're they're uh, they're under the way they make they're starting to to understand the world through whatever information they happen to be getting through their social media accounts and of course you know depending on who you follow and, and all of that kind of crack you can have a, an entirely different you know com- completely distinct uh view uh, you, you know you're getting different information uh with you know alternative facts literally you know uh, so well, the, yeah. the bit that's missing from the analysis that's perpetually missing from this analysis is social media what is it it's an advertising platform. Now, Facebook, when it started, said it was a connection platform. Mm. And then at a point prior to its IPO, they decided, actually, we've got to be an advertising platform in much the same way as the press did. I mean, the, there's a long and storied history of the press. Like the, I mean, the printed press being uh, a vehicle for advertising, but in a much more competitive environment, like the content had to have a degree of quality within it in order to justify its circulation, which gave the credibility, which which created a degree of quality in it. That was its property as an advertising vehicle, its quality. So then you have you go through this whole period of uh, so let's we could jump forward to the eighties and you go through the seventies to the eighties to the nineties a period of consolidation of ownership amongst the media and then all of a sudden the media itself becomes a commodity so as an advertising vehicle well there's three people that own it where else are you gonna where else are you gonna put your adverts you've nowhere else so you put it on telly. No one listens to the radio anymore. It goes in the the press and the magazines. That's it. All of a sudden, the internet pops up. Oh, this is a new vehicle for advertising. Undermines the quality of the press. There's less importance or traditional media vehicles are being run as vehicles for advertising. So the, the content that they deliver is incidental to the revenues that they produce. So the purpose of them as entities is as advertising vehicles, not content providers. Or, I mean, content provider itself is one of those debased phrases. I hate that. It's, I hate the, the, con- the word content as well is very offensive to me. It's very, but, very reductive with journalism. It's, as I've probably said before here, it mm. conjures up images in my head of, of uh, nondescript, reconstituted meat slopping out of a can. That's what I yeah. think of the thing of content, you know? Yeah. So, so this was already being heralded before the social media platforms took over everything. And chasing clicks and revenues, they clickbait, just yeah. undermined the lot. I mean, it's not even, like clickbait is one facet of it, but it's just like engagement to deliver eyeballs. Yeah. And the quality yeah. of those eyeballs doesn't matter. Yeah. So you get to a point where nothing matters. And so to get back to the point about social media, like 
if you're viewing social media as a means of communication, you're viewing it wrong. It's a means mm. of generating eyeballs for ad revenue. Yeah. Like the content that's delivered is incidental. Yeah. They don't consider themselves publishers, and rightly so. Because do you think, do you think that's game. more? But do you think that's more than any other media in history? Uh, you know, newspapers, TV, case in point, that they uh, commercial TV existing for its adverts. Well, yeah, news, newspaper. You know, it's just the it's just the next step. Well, well, yeah, but you have, you have attention between without without the editorial. I think the difference is you're not you yeah. haven't got the editorial of a journalist, the objective journalist who's who's balancing opinions, taking giving you an opinion that's based on this this kind of research that they've done. That that's I think the interesting, and that's why journalism isn't dead, and that's why it will continue because we need to be have trusted people in in a profession yeah. to to give us that stuff, not just a thousand people shouting over each other. But the the means of the means of funding it has been debilitated and gone. So the value of that yeah. editorial perspective, the rigor that is gone. If you look at you're you're right. Press, we're not we're not we're not paying five pounds a week on our local newspaper anymore. You know, nope. we're not buying hard copies. We're not we're not. You know, so you're right. It, that more of it comes from advertising, and that's probably the biggest shift. Right? Not yeah. not necessarily well, how we get that content. And, and that was how. Uh, the media itself became just a commodity in an yeah. environment where there is more competition there is an ability to create a point of differentiation mm. and all mm. of a sudden once you have a process of consolidation and the properties themselves just become advertising vehicles because we've decided that's our revenue model mm. that mm. is how the whole thing is going to run and because mm. there's only four of us doing it in the whole of this, this geography because we've decided that's how we're going to organize the market now. Yeah, that, yeah. It is organized. Have you, have, you, have you seen that film, Idiocracy? Yeah. Uh, really? two, yeah, yeah. I watched it again the other night. Um, I hadn't seen it for a while. Luke, Luke Wilson does a stellar job of being the uh, being the kind of guy who goes ahead into 2000, 2,500, 500 years in the future, and everybody's got stupid and stupid and dumber and dumber. Uh, basically because stupid people have babies and clever people don't so it's this kind of like process <laughs> of getting stupider and stupider and um it's this whole thing that capitalism just runs rampant and no one wants to pay for anything up front it's all based on advertising so that this the state gets completely taken over by the big companies that end up using i think gatorade is the one the famous one they end up watering all their plot crops with gatorade and no one knows why they've done this and everything is water is non-existent anymore it's just gatorade and um <laughs> and and suddenly everything dies so it's dust bowl and they say why are we doing this why well because gatorade's good for the plants it's got electrolytes and they're like what's electrolytes no one knows what electrolytes are and you know it, it, the world just goes into this dystopian future and it takes this guy luke wilson who's just the average guy um who's from year 2000 to say guys we need to water the plants it's it's hysterical because everything is private sector, everything is not paid up front, and it just reduces everything to that kind of insane level of capitalism. But nothing's in the common good. It's just all, you know, society breaks down. So so to bring us back onto today's subject. <laughs> so this is the reason why social media engagement is the only thing. Getting things mm. right or wrong, no one gives a shit. It's just mm. if you get engagement, boom, you're away. And similarly, not exactly the same, but it is analogous. The reason why we don't have shading anymore is because buildings became commodities in a way that mm. they hadn't been before. Mm. 
technology or overconsumption or overuse of technology because mm. that is a a more desirable outcome for the economy generating profit yeah. gdp yeah. whatever metrics by which we are judging the economy that we we spoke about it on the the part one of shady business with uh zoe yeah. where like it's it's more advantageous to an economy to install an aircon system than just have an awning over a shop front exactly yep that's yep. that's the whole fucking thing it's the yep. same problem with social media it's the same problem with the national press it's the same problem with telly it's the same problem with government in that as you alluded we've not been captured by gatorade in terms of our agricultural policy mm. But in all sorts of other areas of policy, particularly housing, yeah, 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 done. Yeah, yeah, water companies, any, any, anything that gets nationalised, transport. The house building industry has, I'd argue, been captured by Gatorade. Certainly, fifty percent of, yeah. of the industry is national house builders, and in in England and Wales and and Scotland. And I think that is a big issue. It's that and process think- of consolidation, which minimizes the amount of competition and allows sort yeah. of market capture reduces everything to the minimum quality offer for the maximum price and and profit which is what we see in the the glorious great british countryside that has you know these brown boxes all over the place and 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 that's what happens when you allow a essentially something that should be for the public good you know housing should be a uh, a human right quality housing should be a human right and you you don't you don't believe in that you don't subscribe to that you think it should be an investment vehicle we should be making money from this house building industry and everybody buys into it and this isn't me pointing fingers at the house building industry quite the opposite it's actually the wider cultural issue because we're all buying into this if you've got a pension you're buying into the into land and you're buying into housing and you're buying into that that system working and becoming profitable you're buying into stocks and shares going up growth continual growth and it's also not saying we need to degrowth you know not i'm not here to, to say you know stop the economy but, but i think there does need to be a significant shift in terms of where you've got a public service sector like housing like land like natural resources you do need to protect that and then there need to be significant changes made to the current and and shading is just one of those you know shading is just an example that was something we've had in our history going back you know millennia but really even in recent decades and uh to to the the famous example in the shading guide is buckingham palace had awnings on in 1890 and you know they they got taken off as soon as we got more climate control and you've seen it in the history of architecture you know, as soon as energy becomes cheap in the modern period, suddenly we don't need to think about passive means. We can have floor to, soil, floor to ceiling glazing. We can have very modernist, expensive in terms of embodied carbon forms. We can use steel. We can use brick. We can, you know, really carbon is not the issue. So architecture is just expands and goes mad for a bit. And it's only the last decade or so that started coming back, isn't it? We've really started taking carbon and energy as a, as a serious design parameter and that has then brought back shading so but it's still not anywhere near the mainstream it's very much on the fringes it's amazing when you think about um uh, for some reason in my head um a very famous irish building called uh, newgrange i don't know if either of you've heard of us okay Um, oh yeah yeah yeah. it's an old uh passage it's a uh it's kind of a a, a, how would you describe it it's a passage tomb when um, you describe it as a building, you make it sound a lot more modern than it actually is. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, yeah, what, is it the World Heritage site? You mean? Like yeah, it is. Yeah, the monument. It's, it's like a monument, right? 
the, yeah, the it's, big it, round it, thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Graph roofs and everything. Three thousand. Three thousand yeah. BC. Um, yeah. Got you. And yeah. Uh, so obviously, being a a, a kind of a, a tomb, um, when fenestration wasn't much of a concern in terms of you know uh, mm. the building generally, right? But they have this famously. They have this. Um, Little, what do they call those things again? The, what, where you put a fan light above a door at uh, that little window space? Got the name of them. Oh um, yeah, um, fan, fan light. Yeah, yeah, but they've got they've got basically a, a, like a little ventilation hatch. Is it? Or it's just a, a, a little stone kind of. Uh, uh, what is it? It's just a little hole. Basically. Oh, the entrance stone. I, I think I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, it's... exactly. And there's on the shortest yeah. day of the year, and it, um, it, uh, the 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 central hallway in the in the tomb lights up. Um, it's just that one day of the year because they were, yeah. you know, they had. In other words, they had that understanding back then, mm. and yet we can't, you know, uh, exactly. for whatever reason we can't do it now. It's kind of ridiculous, you know. Yeah, exactly. I'm not saying we only let light into our buildings on one day a year. That's not. That's a bit of an overreaction. <laughs> if we want people to actually be alive <laughs> rather than dead in there, you know, um, it it just shows that that we have extraordinary. You know ingenuity behind us and, and know-how behind us that we've uh, that we've gone a long way to to uh, to ignore. You know the ease of use. It's in the name of progress. We've gone through you know to to take in glass. Glass was probably the first thing, and and then into climate controlled um, heating and taking out the chimneys, and then into air conditioning, and then really once you've done that, well then the architecture can do whatever it wants, and that was the the freedom, the amazing freedom for people starting realizing in a world where you haven't got climate change and you've got unlimited res resource, then fine, knock yourself out. You know, it's then just cost. So obviously we don't live in that world, and we do have to reverse on lots of those decisions. So yeah, looking back into the archives on on this research that we did um, for the Good Homes Alliance and and the BBSA British Blinds and Shutters Association was really fun because we were, we were looking at these um, vernacular examples that that did exactly that. They they had orientation in mind from day one. They had natural local materials. They climate was very real. You know, you didn't have a climate-conditioned office, a car. A, you were in the weather, and you only have to look at what they wore. You know, had thick clothes on, and um, and and so therefore the buildings had to react to that, didn't they? And and the amount of awnings that we saw in the photos that we looked of um, uh, Victorian London, you know, across all the shop fronts, awnings, even the top floors of the residential flats above, and then a lot of the houses as well. The Georgian houses had awnings or shutters. Um, and and they've all been stripped back. They've now, if you even to the extent where if you're doing a project in a conservation area, you will have kind of planning officers and conservation officers kind of you know challenging you on whether some your new proposal should have shading on it, should have a shutter on it, because it's not in keeping with the local context. So we're finding this kind of level of knowledge people just don't know about, don't know that shading was actually integral to our historical context. I mean, that's uh, a fa fascinating riposte to have to a conservation officer is actually, you yeah. think you're a conservation officer? You don't bloody know. Yeah, here we go. Oh, you so don't we, know the his history of these buildings reality. What, how, do, you want a, do you want me to be true to the modern version of an old building or <laughs> the original version of the old building? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's what we had in this one case. We, we did some interviews for this research and we found one case where 
exactly that happened and the 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 architect and client found in the archives it wasn't quite the neighboring building but it was in the same town an example of some shading on on this um neighboring building of exactly the same type and we we're pretty much able to demonstrate that that building that we're looking at retrofitting would have had shading on at, you know 200 years ago it's just they'd taken it off so they didn't need it anymore so yeah it was fascinating doing that research and probably more from my own point of view just having a chance to go and speak to people and have these sorts of discussions going now with a whole range of um industry so we spoke to um suppliers obviously and and the guide the, the design guide that we ended up writing was was funded by um suppliers so we had um Caribbean blinds, for example, and we had Ballymore on the other end, a private developer on the other end. Um, uh, Guthrie Douglas and Louvalite, I think, were our main sponsors for the guide. So we obviously spoke to them, but then we quite quickly thought, actually, this is not their issue. It's the designers, it's the clients, it's the developers. So we had lots of focus groups with different architects, engineers, developers, and find out why aren't you doing shading at the moment? What are the barriers? You know, why is this an issue? And then what would convince you to do use shading? You know, what are the, some of the solutions? And we found that actually what industry was crying out for was a skills and an awareness piece. And um, and actually we shouldn't be doing a technical or a, it shouldn't be a SIBSI paper, an academic paper that we need. It actually needs to be a more emotional design-led case study of of case study approach of this is how you do good shading and here's loads of examples and look how beautiful they are and look how cost effective they are and deal with the, the barriers that we found which would typically cost you know people thought it costs more to have shading and so there's a perception of cost and this kind of cultural thing of we don't need shading in this country it's not hot you know it's not hot enough we're not like mediterranean or even northern europe we don't need shading so it's a cultural social we thought the way to address that is then to is purely about awareness education let's get a really like sexy guide out there let's get some lovely architecture great images and promote that shading can be beautiful and it can be really smart solution i think once you crack that and you you, you get the minds and the hearts the hearts of the designers and the clients you that's half of it you know it's then you then just gotta have the technical backup which i think we already do there's already some great products out there so well it's a lovely piece of work that you put together. Like it's Thanks. nicely designed and it's easy to read. Mm. Like it, like exactly. it, yeah. you can skim it and you yeah. can get something out of it and you mm. can work out which bits you want to read rather than, as is often the case with the reports in, in our sector, they're boring and impenetrable mm. in terms of design and layout, if not the content. Like the, the value is often hidden. So we had a... So after we published the first episode of the Shady Business with uh, Zoe, which was back in the beginning of December, I think, mm -hmm. uh, whenever that was. It was December, right? It was, yeah, uh, it, we're, it's extremely, it seems extremely bonehead given how short no, uh, I love it. most people are to have uh, two shading episodes uh, in, in, the in winter. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, absolutely, I, mean, I absolutely love it. And Dan and I, we were talking about this uh, earlier, weren't we? It's, yeah. I think it's great. I think it's absolutely what you should be doing because it it it's it shouldn't be a seasonal issue. And it isn't a seasonal issue. And it's it's a year-round global climate change issue. Um, if if we if we carry on doing what we're doing, which is putting in AC in and air conditioning, comfort cooling in new build and retrofit, we've we're screwing up 
on so many levels. And the studies show that you install air conditioning, people use it all year round. But even even in winter, you know, it has a, a heating function, and you just want they just use it to have twenty year twenty degrees all year round. So that that's fundamentally why it's not just a summer issue. And and equally, overheating heating does happen in winter in certain cases. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, we've been talking about the well. I mean, in passive house, like yeah. solar gain uh, is one of Jeff's bugbears for this very reason yeah. that you don't necessarily. Yeah, yeah. It is not necessarily a benefit. It can be yeah, a hindrance. optimize rather than maximize. Optimize, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That's it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so after we put out that episode uh, back in December, because says if you're fixing it in July, you've already fucked up. Yeah. yeah. Um, like we received uh, an email from shout out Dermot McDade. Big up. Good question. He said, nice work on the shading this week. Uh, a bit of info on types of shading, modern techniques, etc., and novel practices would be helpful. Mm. And he was offering that feedback as someone who described himself as a hobbyist rather than a professional. Mm. And I was wondering how we might address that. And then having returned to the guide, like, oh, no, just read the guide. <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Like, exactly that's it the things that he lists that he's looking for it's all yeah. there like it's referenced historically culturally to an extent yeah. and you've got lots of nice photography and specific descriptions so built examples yeah costed built tested examples residents were happy with them you know our, our initial research we went and visited some of these schemes yeah. um the example in uh king's cross uh, which case study is that? It's a case study um, 10, which is the external roller shutter. Um, that's a scheme in King's Cross by Adam Khan Architects. And, you know, that's a game changer for us. That's near our office. So we went and saw it and we spoke to some of the residents and they, you know, you don't don't want to le- give them a leading question. You don't go up and say, hey, how's your, how's your external roller shutter? How's that doing? We said, hey, how's your flat? What do you think about it? And we spoke to three of them and like, all of them said, "Oh yeah, have you seen the shutter? Yeah, let me let's show you." How. And they were really enthused by it. I was blown away by how how happy they were. And they showed how if they just kept it eighty percent down in the summer, they'd have about probably a thirty centimeter gap at the bottom where it was open. They're all in with open windows, and they can get the fresh breeze in and have the shutter down to shade the sun. And they were enthused at how they could have it half open, a little bit open, um, all the way open, a very easy control. Um, so yeah, you know, they loved it. Uh, the architects love that, you know, it activates the facade as a bit of color. Um, so it's flush as well. You can also make outdoor spaces usable as well. Some of the bigger yeah. awnings, for instance, you know, exactly. uh, there's yeah. been some passive house projects. I know you've got Ruth Butler's, um, lovely passive house, um, in yeah. the guide. Um, yeah, lovely. Yeah. And I don't, I, although I don't see the awning, I see other awnings in there. Um, the George. awning isn't in the photo that we showed, but yeah, it, um, yeah, it, the, we yeah, used it for the fins. Yeah. And, and there is an awning on that project as well. Yeah. Mm. It was exactly it. That That's the other side of it. You know, shading in, in the amenity areas is, is extremely important. Um, you know, not, on an extreme it's, you know, risk of cancer. You know, if you go anywhere in really hot countries, that's all they're scared, scared of the sun, you know, run away from the sun. We need to shade our gardens. We need to stay in the shade all the time. So. The, Brits, the Brits in, in those countries. Yeah. yeah, yeah exactly. Bad dogs Belly. and Englishmen. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Bellies out and top. What's it? Taps off. <laughs> tops off yeah um so again that's a cultural thing and and i guess people 
don't know what they don't know. So when you go and speak to uh, prospective people and say, would you like sh- shade? Do you need shading in your house? Probably say no. I, you know, I'm don't, I'm happy. I just got my tunnel. I got my curtains. I'm fine. But then when you give it to them and they try it out, they're, they're enthused, you know, they love it. Um, and that was the eye opener for us speaking to the residents. And that's what we really wanted to make this guide about very visual, um, it's obviously aimed at the industry, it is aimed at architects, aimed at designers, aimed at clients, to, to, to the decision makers. But equally, if there's someone who's, you know, wants to install shading on their house, it's it's also very accessible to, to consumers, you know, so direct buyers. And it, it just provides enough detail to kind of, and we created this performance um, web that's on each one of the options. It gives you an idea of whether it does the full job in terms of overheating mitigation, whether it still allows winter gains, whether it allows for daylight, you know, it gives you an idea of operability, ventilation, and cost as well. We wanted to do a whole cost, which we did a whole cost exercise with a with a QS. So it gives people enough information to then go, right, I like the look of that product. Um, I like the look of internal hidden shutters. Um, go to the back, and there's more detail on 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 that. And then I'll phone up the supplier and you know get your get your detail from them get your spec get your how much is it going to cost and all the rest so well, that's a great piece of work uh well done yeah yeah um, we Thanks, should yeah. we should give a, a shout out as well to we didn't ask you who you are in the that so i mean obviously i know but um this sponsor. is why i record the intro in it jeff so i can do well, I, I can do I that part at the start okay well see, but, you, you you can say who he is and you can you can take ownership you can be you know don't give him a chance to have his own voice on it. It's, it's not that. It's that we're like 46 minutes into the conversation. I can tell you quickly about myself and who did the, did the <laughs> guide, if you want. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I'll start, I mean, the guy, I'll start with the guide first. So the guide, the guide was um, my company, Pollard, Pollard Thomas. I'm, I'm Tom Dollard, I'm partner at Pollard Thomas Edwards, I'm architecture firm based in London. And and sustainability specialists as well. So my team is is just does that. And we were asked by the Good Homes Alliance that we won a competition to to win to to so we tendered um up against uh all the normal people who might want to do this sort of guide. Um we won it and we went in with Max Fordham to help us out on some of the technical modeling, which was great to work with them up on some of the detail of this. And Oxford Brooks worked with Rajat Gupta. Um, it's obviously a professor there has done lots of building performance evaluation. Yeah. Yeah. And then Martin Arnold, who are a, a, a QS um, surveying company, we wanted some costs and kind of practical surveying knowledge from them. Uh, so it was a really strong team. And we had our, we've got in house graphics as well. So that helped really present. And we've got an in house editor and writer, critic, we call him, in fact, who's um, Rory Alcolito, who's the ex editor of the Architects Journal and ex-CEO of Open City. And he's now our in-house critic, which is a very interesting person to have in your company. That's um yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant because he does all our reviews. He comes to our you know, in internal pinups, critic critiques. We do post-occupancy reviews on all our projects. So he he leads those. He's very objective um and critical, which is great. I think every architect should have one. Um, and he helps on our comms side as well and our writing. So, so he helped edit this and get it down into a kind of front-facing publication, basically. Um, so that, that's that's yeah, that's that's who's done it. That's PTE. So great team, and it's been six months in the making, and probably a few months before that in research as well, just to do our context, do our fact finding, and focus groups, and various things that we did. 
And I should say it's been paid for by the BBSA as well. Got a plug. So Zoe was obviously on the uh, steering group and uh, yeah, BBSA funded it with their members, um, Guthrie Douglas, Louvalite and Caribbean Blinds. And then Ballymore very generously also came in at the end, a big successful private developer in London, Ballymore and elsewhere. Yeah, well, they're an Irish company. An yeah. Irish company, aren't they? Of course, yes. Yeah. And so Ballymore gave us some very, they two of them, um, their head of technical and head designer from Ballymore came onto the steering group. So had various meetings of steering group and they were excellent in terms of giving us some really hard-nosed commercial angle on why would a commercial developer install blinds when they can just go straight to comfort cooling. And typically that's what Ballymore do. And any other high-end or even mid, mid-end high-rise developer is going to put in comfort cooling, um, air conditioning even, because they can sell that. They can sell that to the resident. They can say, this is a added value. You get com- you get climate controlled all the way through the summer, nice and comfortable. And it's, you know, 10 grand more on your sales price. Mm. Whereas they can't really sell, um, you know, a shuttered system outside or a brise or whatever it is. That, that's just a cost. So they're getting around the, the really into the deep, deep of why aren't major developers installing blinds when we know it's the right thing to do from building physics. We know it gives more comfort. We know it lops off, it, you know, in terms of cooling loads and and heating loads as well. In so fact, when you say they can't claim it back, uh, or you know, in terms of extra, the sales value, the sales yeah. value that, that, yeah. that's because the, the market doesn't currently understand the issue really, yeah. Um, yeah. and yeah. thinks that a, that a, a air conditioning is a preferable solution yeah, to stopping the bloody heat from getting in in the first place and controlling it, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. that And that's why we wanted to get involved. We were working for these developers, designing schemes where we were promoting shading and it just gets chopped off on, on a meeting too. It's like, why are you doing this? Do we need this? And it's like, well, do you, re- well, you don't really need it. It's not like legislation, regulation is mandating shading. So no, you don't really need it, but it's the kind of most sensible approach from comfort. And you, you put forward this argument and they just say, nah, it's cost too much. We can't sell it. We'll just put in air conditioning. And we you know realized what? it was it was going down that way of, and then you, you obviously that's, you know, thousands of homes. You start scaling that up across the whole country. It's suddenly affecting the grid. It's having huge. It's a huge effect to grid supply, essentially. So it's a, it's a resilience issue more than anything. If you have electrific- electrification of cooling above heating as well, you're in a big problem with new build as, well, and, and, and retrofit as well. Because this is the to issue. Glib and to think that sorry, Dan. Uh, to, to, to be th- to think that um, uh, well, you know, air conditioning will occur at the same time that PV is generating or the cooling will come. Um, uh, but of course, that's yeah. not necessarily true. People, especially if people are using it in the winter, yeah. and you could have hot, you could have warm, very warm, muggy summer days where yeah. you know uh, it's the shoulder months where the worry is. It's the shoulder months where you don't need it. It's eighteen degrees outside, perfectly comfortable inside, but it's just like you just either out of laziness or you haven't thought about it. It's just on. You're just used to it being on. It controls the humidity as well. Don't forget that. And air conditioning will control humidity. So that provides a certain level of comfort in, in either a dry flat or a, or a more humid day. And I think just people just don't think about it. It's just like, yeah, so you'll just have it running nine, 10 months of the year. And then you might turn it off in winter. 
but you know london especially with the urban heat island we're having such mild winters now and much warmer summers and the shot your summer's extending right into october last year you know we had a november is suddenly started getting a bit cooler so theoretically you could have your air conditioning on for nine months of the year and not really notice it and then you're right pv is meant to be and wind but what people don't realize is the current models they don't they're already at max you know this is additional um, and if you look at the concept of peak heat, I don't know if you've covered peak heat on on this podcast yet, but very briefly, if, if you map gas demand for the country across a year, I should I'll probably start with electric demand. So you map, you map electric demand, it's kind of up and down, up and down, a little bit more in the, in the winter because of electric lighting, shorter hours, but essentially it's kind of like a, a, a bobbling up and down. If you map Gas is like a Mount Everest. It just goes right up, you know, five times more in the winter and right down low in the summer. So the problem that government have is that if we're going to electrify heat, we've obviously got this huge Mount Everest in the winter that we can't just have gas. And the beauty of gas is that it's just sitting around in tanks and it's on tap. You can bang, you can chuck a load of gas down the network and it does it. It does that February the 9th at nine o'clock in the morning, you know, the peak, the peak heat of the year in the darkest depths of winter, nine o'clock in the morning, every time, everybody turns 85% of the nation puts their gas boiler on. You can do that because you've got tons of gas just waiting around in gas holders, but you can't do that with electric. Yeah. This is a problem of peak heat. It's the biggest case for insulation and energy efficiency, reducing heat demand is to deal with peak heat. And it hasn't been sorted by government yet. We're all talking about heat pumps. We're talking about retrofit measures that look at electrification of new build and re- and retrofit. But we're not really dealing with that peak heat. And obviously, the answer is that you have to do energy efficiency. But even that's lopping, you yeah. know, might get 50% off that Mount Everest. You still have the problem. So adding cooling on top of that is just, you're just back to square one. You're Mount Everest again. So it is, it is absolutely nuts. And then the other problem just on electrification is obviously cars and batteries. And But I'll leave that for another day. But <laughs> cooling, I think it's just, it, it just absurd that we could be heading to a situation where new build, the go-to thing is just increased mechanical ventilation and cooling. And that's adding to our climate emissions. It's adding to our grid issues. I, I wouldn't have... Going backwards. Uh, hard to argue against putting proper mechanical ventilation in. I'm talking about boosted I mean, and, and using MVHR as a cooling... It, which is not so i'm, yeah, I'm I just you know, what you're saying yeah 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 so I mean, two three still, three the, the, uh, changes should still be pretty low with, with those systems however i guess it, it all accumulates and it's and, and you're right like it's still kind of like that's a nice thing to have in your armory you know um mm. but it's not the solution the solution no. is to, to getting in in the first place even so one one of our interviews was well it wasn't actually an interview it was a fa- it was a famous quote from a previous piece of research it was the head or the chair of the american air conditioning council i can't remember and he basically said came out and said all good air conditioning design starts with passive measures starts with shading starts with reducing a glazing ratios g value whatever it is ventilation mechanical and then we do a good air conditioning unit on top but you don't yeah. start designing a glass box and that's not the way to do it so i think yeah everybody realizes that is building physics that's the cooling hierarchy that the that we've presented in the guide but unfortunately our culture and to a smaller extent the cost the supply chain hasn't really caught up cut with that and that's what we're trying to deal with in the guide there's no incentive for the supply chain to catch up unless there's money in it for unless there's demand yeah 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 like and where 
where there is demand is for an increase of high density housing. Yep. So we we talked about Canary Wharf, like you know, big glass towers stock yep. up, which are ultimately going to rely on aircon in yep. a changing climate. They're going to be beholden to aircon, beholden to energy, for them to be hab habitable. Like uh, when we spoke with Huda El Sharif last year, she described being in Sudan in a friend's flat. They experienced load shedding. Then power went out, blackout. Yeah, blackout. Aircon yeah. goes off immediately. All mm. her friends get down and lie on the floor. Oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, lying on the floor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, great. That is just not possible. Like culturally, we ain't going to put up with it. <laughs> like so. To Jeff's point, Mad Dog's an Englishman. Uh, oh, only it's an old no coward song for them that don't know it. Only Mad Dog's an Englishman go out in the midday sun. An allusion to our uh, colonial past where we were horrors across. Yeah, yeah. The sun never set on the horrors that we inflicted on the uh, world. Yeah. Architecture. Calling us, we wear horrors and saying we inflicted horrors. When I think we wear horrors, I think you're talking about, you know, uh, quite dismissive term for like a naughty child, but um, uh, committing <laughs> atrocities is an. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the atrocities. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what does interest me, though, is to. So in speaking with someone like Ballymore, you will have understood their sentiment. Like they will have been putting their best face forward in this. But yeah. how much are they and how much might they have given you an insight into how their peers are thinking about meeting market demand mm. and the needs of a changing climate, which everyone is determined to ignore? Mm. Great, great question. And I won't pin this just on Ballymore, um, because obviously, you know, they're, they're in many ways doing the best and paying for this research. So that that's great. It should be recommended. Um, but I do work with other, my company does work with other private developers, and I do have a lot of insight in terms of how house builders work, how developers work. And you're right, this isn't, you know, their number one mission is to make profit for their shareholders. In many ways, house builders, you know, building the house is, is an inconvenience. Um, if they could do it another way, they trade the land, get planning permission, sell it off. You know, it's kind of it's kind of like by the by they're building this house, a minimum legal standards. So we kind of accept that. So what what we found, and this isn't actually in this shading guide. This is more in my own thesis. I've just completed a doctorate at Leeds Beckett University with um, David Glue, the professor there, Leeds Sustainable Institute. Congratulations. Thank you. And my, uh, so I've submitted, I've got my Viva in a couple of weeks. Um, but my findings essentially, it was 55 interviews and 10 of those were major house builders and there's four low carbon housing case studies. But the interviews were fascinating with the, with the major house builders. I really got under the skin of this issue. And essentially, yeah, I, I was kind of came at it quite naively, I guess, at the beginning thinking it's, it's an ethical thing. It, it's, um, you personally are working for this company and your mission statement of your company is to make money and you're not thinking of residents, you're not thinking of climate change. You're, you're, you've got your ESG agenda and that's complete greenwash um, and that's even worse um, and kind of getting quite personal. And I think, just park that for a second because I think individual leadership is a huge enabler for change in the sector. So I'm not belittling that. But what they were saying is that 
it's the it's the um it's the culture it's the um economic model that they sit under both the land ownership and the land buying model is number one problem so they all have to buy competitively against their peers they can't afford to pay much if they're going to a higher standard blah 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 that's the first problem how we trade land and how we make money from land the second problem is their businesses that we have allowed and bought into and share buying stocks and shares are, are literally private companies and they do their number one thing is to make profit so if they can see an angle in getting value back and whether it's reputational and that's a big thing for house builders if their reputation can be increased if they can improve their stock market price through reputational gains or um res or consumers think they're a better guy than the other guy then they can sell their homes for more and there is a long-term angle there but most of the time it's year end next year end financial years what's our bottom dollar and so that's not none of that is giving better quality it's in fact it's the opposite so when something like this happens a new regulation a new concept like shading you base for the 50 percent of the market the house builders you have to regulate you know you have to provide that level playing field and to date the only problems we've had that is it hasn't been strong enough or clear enough we haven't had clear partel future home standard whatever it is part o hasn't been clear enough so even part o now doesn't the part o overheating regulation doesn't mandate shading you know it doesn't do that it just says you know do this as a simplified it's just it's too complicated you need to be having very simple com uh, regulation based on performance outcomes not a theoretical sat model it needs to be a test you know as soon as you have an air test people do the air test they might cheat it in certain amounts but it's still a physical test as soon as you have a, a guy on site who's going to check that they do it builders are very good at meeting a performance requirement they have to meet They'll, they will do that all day long but if it's theoretical if it's a sat model if it's a dynamic simulation model it'll be cheated it will be worked out there'll be well, the runarounds there'll be the you know ways to do it and you won't get change so, so basically, my thesis, and to a small extent, this this guide has shown that the the alternatives. Then, if you're not going to regulate, you have to go to that emotional, cultural, education piece, and you have to rely on strong leadership from CEOs, uh, market leaders, legacy landowners, people in you know, politicians, essentially strongly, or actually anybody in a business. Um, we had an example of a graduate who worked at a um, major house builder. In fact, it was in their interview. They asked the boss, what's your ESG policy and how do I know you're not greenwashing? And, you know, I was like, oh, okay. And then, you know, got the job and then started asking more and more difficult questions up to the CEO. What are we doing about? And, you know, so it change can happen at any level and it can be individual, can be people with a passion and ethical, you know, knowledge. So we, we're building on that. I suddenly realized actually whole of government policy at the moment is kind of off kilter. You shouldn't be plugging regulations one thing you know so if you can regulate great and that'll break get the baseline but actually you need to provide incentives in a way in a smart way that deliver performance and the means to deliver that performance so not paying seven thousand five hundred pounds for heat pumps grant that's not going to solve it what you actually need to do is pay for the training the skills the awareness piece both from a resident consumer and also the trades and the people going to install them and commission them to make sure they can install that tech and really get it right and make sure it's a success and it's so it's a it's an awareness comms piece and then it's a skills and training and knowledge piece to make sure you know 
um, uh, people, people both from consultants and designers all the way down know what they're talking about. And there are many examples I got from interviews and my own experience. So I remember doing my certified passive house training eight years ago. That was a game changer for me. You know, I, I suddenly understood building physics. It was some of the best training I ever did. And ended up becoming a trainer for AECB and doing their passive house bite size course. We actually actually came up with the bite size course that is kind of the the, the half day courses for passive house now. That was about eight years ago. And we we ran that with the green register as well. And why I was so passionate about that is if you can give people an insight, the grounding in building physics and architects and designers, that has the power to change uh, the system, you know, from the bottom up. And that's what the Passfaust um, whole, you know, standard and this whole movement has done. It, from the ground up, without any real legislation, certainly in England and Wales, other countries have done different things, but it has from the ground up done that. You know, people have recognized it gives the benefits, health and well-being, comfort. They've recognized that and they've just done it. And that's what we need with yeah. the wider electrification and cooling and shading. We need a similar sort of standard that people can grab and skill up and get enthused by. And it will go from the ground up rather than top down. And that will be better outcomes. And actually, when you speak to government, like I do regularly, because I'm, I'm, I'm advising government on Partel and Future Home Standards, that's what they want. You know, They don't really want to regulate. You know, no government really wants to tell business what to do. Certainly not this government. Maybe other governments will. So they really want a ground up movement. So then it is all about skills, training and awareness. So they just need to incentivize that, pay grants for that. But the ground up stuff is almost always undermined by, in the UK and probably yeah. North America, shareholder primacy uh, and the fact that regulations are taken to be ceilings rather than floors. Yeah. So all of a sudden that becomes the issue. Yeah. And I think, so when we spoke about this, so we set this up in the, the show notes that we'd prepared amongst ourselves for the mm. episode. So your notion that the land model is the problem mm. because the exorbitant price of land, such as it is, uh, that sets the price of everything that follows. And there mm. is a ceiling on what people are able to pay. Yeah. So them that own the land, they, they know how much profit they're going to get out of it. And yep. everyone else lower down the, the pecking order gets squeezed. But yep. if you regulate, you force people into a position where they know what the demands are. So the price of land, so th this, is Jeff's, yep. this is one of Jeff's talking points that he always, uh, yeah, I mean, this is a economic, I mean, it's been written up in various papers. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's well-known economic model. I, I don't know how, I think people get it in the industry, but it's not, but should be talked about more. Why is it not? Why? So it's we the know it I take. I take why because it's too. From the bottom up, it, it it won't be allowed from the top down. But if you do it from the top down, it so does what, work, and yeah. everyone makes all the money they need to so, anyway. So what my research, what my research found was that you need to do both. That's the that's the summary. But um, because if you're doing top down, changing policy, you need the evidence base to yeah. show. So you need the you need the likes of the. Passive House Institute, Passive House Trust. You need the two and a half thousand homes in England Wells that have been built to pass. You need the ACB. You need the Green Rate. You need these people doing the small scale, the housing associations, the legacy landowners that I'm working with now who really care about and are really pushing the standards. You need that to a critical mass. I don't know what that critical mass is, 
it could be 10 it could be it's certainly more than we're doing now well it's um, 20 percent for fascism so that's a <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll go with 20 percent. yeah so you know 20 if, if we got if we got to twenty thousand pacifiers in in uk happy days i think we're then then supply chains skilled up you know people know what air tightness is they don't look at you blankly they know about you know they've got the tricky bits of pacifiers because it is difficult i'm not saying pacifiers it's difficult to build and a bit easier to design but and, and this is an example low carbon materials as well probably more important you know timber frame and yeah. uh, and all the rest so you need to do that and then you need the top down but the top down is is limiting and so my recommendations in this paper that i've written is is in my thesis is that you, you, if you're going to do regulation it needs to be clearer and it needs to be set on a benchmark basis and it's not minimums it's a aspirational benchmark you ha- you do have a minimum um and and that's the way luckily hope uh, the pol- most policy is going now in this area you've got the gla for example regulating for embodied carbon yeah. And it's a benchmark. It's a series of benchmarks. You go 500 and 300 and, you know, lower. And Letty has got a similar thing for their embodied carbon. And they've got a range for operational or energy use intensity as well that differs from apartments and, and houses. So it's more, it's smarter regulation, basically. You're not so setting the, the minimum. You know, you're setting the, the aspiration. What you're describing, though, is analogous to the heating market in that there was a top-down mandate to phase out gas boilers, mm. which, because there was no preparation throughout the whole supply chain to enable such a, uh, a directive to be fulfilled, that it's been rolled back, because mm. not just because, uh, well, no one likes change, but because there's nothing to, to enable that change to happen in a way that's actually going to work for all the stakeholders in the the value chain or the ecosystem or the the market like whatever way you look at it it's it's inadequate and i think it's fascinating to see it's the same everywhere <laughs> yeah yeah it is i think i'm 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 an optimist generally and my research is optimistic it does show that things are changing and in my own practice things are changing you know i've been head of sustainability in my practice for 14 years and almost 15 years now and i came out interestingly you've had you've had some fascinating people on this podcast and a lot of them i know a lot of them i studied with at um university of east london with sophie pelsmakers so she she and i were in the first year together and um and she ended up doing the running the master's course there in sustainability and then we've obviously kept in touch but then loads of you speak like loads of people on this podcast and you know other people have, have studied there with sophie so it's interesting to hear that connection but we were talking about this back then and i don't want to be one of those guys who's like <laughs> you know band, bandwagon i've been yeah. talking about this for years blah 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 but it's so the thing is if you come at it at a, at a, as a student level, which I was back in early 2000s, and you, you get told this thing about sustainability, it's all about long life, loose fit, the basic principles of social, economic, environmental sustainability, global climate change, limiting carbon emissions, limiting uh, resources. You do start to question that at that time, even things that were being promoted to us as best practice. So for example, my, my thesis at UEL was looking at the buildings of Walter Segal and the self-built timber frame houses yeah. of Walter Segal. And you've got Seagull's Way and Lewisham. That was my case study. And essentially, I took that scheme. I took those houses and I said, how would you apply this to modern building regs? How would you apply passive house um, method? I modeled it in PHPP. And then how would you make this zero carbon? And my thesis at the time basically said, going to zero carbon wasn't worth it. 
because we were adding in PV, like uh, 16 panels, and I did a back of the envelope embodied carbon calculation, five tons of embodied carbon for the 16 panels. Uh, I can't remember what the MEP solution was, but it was a high-tech MEP solution. And I was adding insulation as well. And it was synthetic insulation, or maybe it's wood wool, uh, maybe it was a, um, uh, a mineral wool. But Walter Segal's famously used mineral wool, uh, sorry, um, wood fiber. It was actually um, a wood, uh, mashed up wood insulation inside the timber panel. Very natural, very old school way of insulating timber frame. And so I did this study basically showing, guys, what 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 are we doing? Built putting PV in all our buildings like that shouldn't be the policy at the time. It was the policy. You had the ten percent Merton rule. You had basically the code for sustainable homes had just started. So with this idea of code level six being the ultimate, and it was basically zero carbon, and it had you know a heat pump or ground source heat pump, and it had loads of PV, loads of it, plastic insulation wrapping, you know petrochemical insulation wrapping up the building, very airtight. Passive house for me at the time was was a game changer as well. And I kind of did realize that fabric first like and comfort basis should be it, but it kind of got us thinking. I remember Sophie and I, that was a game changer for me. It was like, I, I loved the, the intellectual kind of hypocrisy of it and the debates <laughs> that you could have on a very technical level. Right. I love that. And I still do to this day, love it. And I, and pretty much on a daily basis, I'll have conversations with clients or colleagues or friends on this level of you know should i get a heat pump you know, being the current one for my house or or what should we be doing on this scheme are we going low carbon in natural material so we've got a client at the moment a big house builder and we're doing some prototype houses with them we're looking to they're looking to scale up to net zero carbon but we're trying to steer them away from the net zero carbon we're basically saying net zero per house isn't really the answer you don't want to be doing yeah. that is actually net zero neighborhood, fine, net zero system, fine. Yeah. But if you've got the electrification of heat, 2035, electrification of um, uh, uh, greening the grid, 2035, don't really need PV. You don't really need um, super amounts of insulation like that. And that's a mute point. That is certainly, it's about fuel poverty and comfort more than carbon. But so passive house, question mark. Certainly passive house, low energy building methods, certainly as a baseline. And then it's how do you build this? What's the upfront carbon? How are we going to get that to next to nothing? And very encouragingly, it's bringing me back to my why am I optimistic, ESG funding on this one um, house builder, two house builders in fact, and will, will remain na nameless, is forcing them, or is it, put it a polite way, encouraging them to push, push, push for mm. embodied carbon, upfront embodied carbon. And we're now working with them. We've got two, three sites of sizable sites, 50, 100 homes, looking at straw bale, looking at hemp construction, looking at timber frame, looking at all natural materials, looking at screw pile foundations, not not, not concrete, you know, taking out the concrete, take out any plastic from as much plastic as you can. It's obviously almost impossible to do, but, you know, take out plastic insulation, taking out plastic wrapping, looking at waste on site, looking at water neutrality, really kind of getting bottom up, like what is genuinely sustainable, like regenerative like regenerative house. So we've called it regenerative house. We've also got a natural house, which is going down the kind of Tom Woolley hemp build process. Yep. And yep. then the, the 2050 house is basically passive house plus with timber frame. It's probably going to be the, the eco cocoon straw timber frame, but we might look at other systems. Um, no brick, no concrete. So very low passive house, 
if if the form factor works, we'll go for pass-fast. If not, yeah. we'll go pass-fast, low-energy building. And I fundamentally, you know, that's the best we can do from a new build. But it, even that's got hypocrisy, isn't it? Even that's like, why do we need these homes in this area? Do we really need to be building new build homes? Yeah. So the step back from that is like, I'm kind of greenwashing my own, you know, existence. It's kind of why... Why do we need architects anymore? Well, why do we need new? Why do we need new builds? <laughs> Not architects, because I think architects are clever people. They'll they'll reskill and they'll they'll be useful for society. But and you know, I'm, I think maybe in ten years' time, if we do this again, I might not be an architect anymore. I might just be a consultant. You know, telling people not to build, and that's yeah. interesting in itself. But I think certainly that hypocrisy at the moment is new building even kind of possible. In, in a climate crisis and i think we're trying to show yes it is if you re- if you accept that you need homes you need to build new homes yeah. and you can't just retrofit everything then you need to be doing it in this way and we're trying think, to find out what that way is you know and i, I and, think the very next we can do is is, is ask you say you know uh and maybe this isn't good enough is is uh the question is what's the least bad thing we can do if we're building mm. new homes you know yeah 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 exactly if you accept that a society and it's a society issue if you accept that you need homes in this area of of the country most of the time it's inappropriate areas i have to say the majority of new build housing is not in the right areas that's yeah. probably why we have a yeah. housing crisis but if, if if you just forget that issue then yeah you're right jeff like what is the least bad thing to do what how can we really nail down on embodied carbon on on the synthetics on um yeah harmful materials basically pollutants and uh, that's a big awareness piece that a lot of well i don't think yeah that i mean that's pretty marginal at the moment isn't it even mm-hmm. kind of forward thinking developers are just thinking oh, i'll do passive house but i'll still do it with well, they, traditional insulation the and, in a way yeah, yeah. So, i mean so the, the the optimism that you take from this is esg drive and i'm seeing it, similar things it's just pri- private funding yeah and they're yeah, coming exactly. they're coming to the they come to me because of oh tom dollar yeah oh, yeah you've written a book on yeah on energy efficient homes you you got you know that's it. That for me is a game changer because, fi- as I said, I've been in head of sustainability for f- almost fifteen years. The first ten years, it was me being a salesperson. Yeah, <laughs> like I'm going into meetings with these relatively big companies, and they're just like, "Why are you here? Why do we need to do sustainability? Tell us oh, why no, it's, it's good." Not yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's like that was fun because I uh, I like a challenge, and and I, I liked kind of that. Yeah, that that is a, literally a challenge, but it, it's very different now. I mean, now I almost don't bother with those clients who's not who are not bothered. It's I've got too much work from and that you know from genuine clients who want to do the best they can, the least amount of damage, the the least bad option, um, and that's then fascinating because then we're dealing with the really nitty things of okay, how can we how can we technically do this? Yeah, can we do screw pile foundations? Can we take concrete out? Can we take brick out? Is 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 a recycled brick, you know, like the K brick from Edinburgh, uh, waste brick, is that okay? Or or yeah. should we just take out the brick completely? You know, and just, just do too much. See, yeah, all these, te- and then it's then the... just technical, right? And, that, and that's yeah. fascinating then. Are and cultural. You're t- t- touching on the inherent problem with even circularity as a concept is good, it's better than a lot of yeah. people. The idea of propping up unsustainable uh, consumption yeah. patterns and so on, um, just yeah. to be saying, well, it's okay because we'll recycle. Just a recycle brick. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. You, do, you can, you can use a million, you can yeah. use as many recycled bricks as you want. It's like, um, no, think yeah. about it. Yeah. <laughs> Step back once. Yeah. 
we need some new bricks to recycle, lads. What are we going to get them? Well, great. I mean, it's very Just serious. Build the really badly, and then so, they'll be knocking them down. So, yeah. I mean, you joke about recycled bricks, and it is a bit of a joke about recycled bricks, but it's happening now with GGBS, the grass oh, yeah. granulated blast slag that goes into green concrete. So we can do 30%, 40%, even 50% GGBS, which decarbonizes. Yeah, and You've more. But, 70% plus, yeah. Sure, sure. Seventy percent plus in it. You know, yeah, exactly. But you know, that's a byproduct of the steel industry. But we're not doing that anymore. Port Talbot or wherever it is in Wales has just closed down and was phased out. They're going electric. So that that is an example. The insulation is obviously petrochemical insulation is about there's so many byproducts we're thinking more and more and it's what we saw with yeah the whole insulation industry is fascinating for that. It just for years, myself included, was just like on the hotline to, you know, Kingspan, Celatex, yeah, more, 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 you know, let's, how big can our walls get? 200 mil insulation, great, I want it. You know, 300 mil insulation, great, I want it. Let's get my U-values as low as possible. And, you know, Passive House refines that and it it makes it far more smart and and building physics stacks up, but it's still not, you know, and, and it kind of took me, maybe it was maybe about four years ago when we started doing like whole life building models. We did LCA models on our projects internally. And we started realizing, oh, if we go passive house, and this was when, you know, a non-optimized passive house, I should say, like, let's just take a detached house with a form factor of three, say. We were doing walls of like 200 mil insulation, 300 mil insulation, and kind of like the Wimbish type passive houses yeah, yeah that's sort of hasto there are 300 mil cavity walls we we're doing the embodied carbon calculations lo and behold it's yeah 10 15 more embodied carbon because you got much bigger fabric compared to skinny walls yeah we were like oh that's interesting didn't really think much of it and now fast forwarding when i'm actually you know building these things it's like when we've got several passive house projects on site and other similar um uh, energy positive homes and things like that with massive constructions we are starting to think okay what is we're kind of the last few years been thinking oh maybe we don't do that maybe we and this isn't an argument against pacifiers at all yeah. but it's yeah. kind of slightly okay maybe we do that where it makes sense we've got a nice terrace you know terrace tower great form factor happy days and but maybe it's more important to think about the, the building spec the materials so now we're doing far more work with the obvious um natural building materials and, and there's some great companies out there looking at that Natural well, building systems, you know, all, you all look, those guys. Indie Nature got their BBA the other day. Yeah, so uh, exactly. congratulations, Sam and Co. Yeah, good guests. shout so, out. Yeah, props to them. Yeah. Right. So we better wrap up because we're long time into it. Um, one thing we did we cover, we've talked a lot, we've gone all over the place here, about how not considering your shading up front increases your costs down the line when you have to mitigate the fact that you didn't bother with shading up front because like the cost of aircon and ventilation mm. retrofitting them is absurd yeah. <laughs> compared to the cost but it's the sort of thing that can be value engineered out of a project did yeah. we cover that at all or not? i don't think we did i mean oh. yeah, for perhaps, perhaps we can just touch on it I, it it's kind of self-evident for me but maybe i'm so in into this um it shading is like Reba stage one start of a project yeah it needs to be on the table your concept design uh and and because in many ways 
before to before shading there's there's things up with the hierarchy you know can you use the form of the building to to minimize the amount of shading can you reduce the size of the windows which helps to to point but actually then it affects daylight and it affects your free opening area for ventilation as well so actually there are only certain things you can do so shading is number what is is on is on the list of constraints at the beginning if you leave it out and you just assume it's going to come later it will bite you in the ass basically at some point we've got the new part of building regulations which is not perfect but it's pushed this up the agenda and it's essentially got teeth so that because it's a regulation if a developer were to ignore it or not deem to be compliant with it it, it's kind of in the territory of you know either make it right so tear it down start again or a future consumer future resident could come back and sue them for that for you know you've you haven't you've clearly not demonstrated compliance with pi because my flat is overheating and i've got this regulation that i can i can prove that you didn't deliver so it adds teeth to that argument of kind of resident recompense should we say and so it clearly and if you don't if you just put in active cooling and make land it's obviously more expensive if you have to retrofit but it's even more expensive if you just do it from a new build perspective as well we've done lots of cost modeling showing that cooling is more expensive than shading basically very very basically um the costs are in the guide but you know typically per window you might be looking at a 500 pound cost for a, for an extra a good quality external roller shutter or roll um that's the metal stuff that's non-combustible and a roller blind would be cheaper whereas an air conditioning unit you know five six seven thousand um increased ventilation slightly less but then you've got all the floor ceiling heights that need to change and the ducts that need to get bigger so it, it's not quite winning the cost argument the problem as i said going back to the beginning is that developers can sell comfort cooling and they can they can literally sell it for increased value but also it sounds good on the brochure whereas culturally we haven't bought into this idea of shuttering being good or shading being a good thing for my house don't see the value in it do we we i think in every other european country uh, northern european including holland classic example this is just the norm and if you went to us that didn't have an external shutter you'd be a bit surprised you know, yeah and that's I the think, that's I very think, similar climate it's very similar in fact holland to birmingham so it's kind of that same level i think i think the shaded um the shaded outdoor areas is is the obvious way to sell that you know it, yeah. um, it, because you can potentially turn that into a benefit um i also think that one i don't know how to how to this is probably wildly delusional but the thing that that could be transformative for a lot of this stuff is if you find if you can find a mechanism on math to enable building users feed data back into mm. the process, um, you uh, know, on what their building is actually like to use. Do they like their building? How comfortable yeah. is this? All yeah. the you yeah. know all that kind of stuff in a simple way. Of course, most people in the industry will will hate you for suggesting that. You know, I don't. I don't think they would. I think the. I think half the industry would. I yeah. think I'd, I'd, I would, I would love that. I mean, I've, um, uh, various other projects we've, we've, um, looked at that. So you'll be aware of, well, you might not be. There's a website called honestbuildings.co.uk or.com. I think it was an American company and they had a mapping GIS system. It didn't speak to resident users, but it asked them, the managers or the owners of the building to provide data. Um, so you could bet basic 
data about the building. It was a map of, I think they covered a lot of New York and they were looking at doing it in the UK. I think they've since gone under, but various other platforms have taken data and possibly it needs someone like Rightmove to come in and go, we're going to take your user feedback. We're going to take the Rightmove platform we're going to go back and survey, and I know there are um, survey house building survey company um, that's doing this at the moment, and then have that live, yeah, that live feed, that going back to our social media conversation, yeah. like literally turn that into a kind of uh, what what's the what's the holiday one or the the, the restaurant one trip advisor. trip advisor yeah you have a trip advisor for houses what's it like living in this apartment block and you got you know and you get people to fill in the the survey. This is I've been a renter in this block. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's another that's another thing we're seeing. Build to rent is becoming more of a thing in London. Certainly, I don't know yeah. about the rest of the UK. Maybe in Manchester as well. It's it's that that service is either housing as a service and therefore comfort and therefore energy bills and therefore um, access to to these these things that were you know shading is is going to be seen, be given a premium. And I think as soon as you, you're right, you get yeah, that feedback loop where it really hurts people's reputation. So if you get a four star review yeah. that screws the algorithm on your on your block of flats suddenly you can't get planning permission because the council know about it and your your reputation's in shreds it'll feed into yeah. the whole esg thing yeah. basically because yeah your you, uh, investors you know, this is exactly it you know um yeah. so oh, yeah, the in sg too you know yeah. Yeah. so yeah. thematically going back to where we started with the social media uh, accountability is not a bad thing yeah. do what you like so long as people can be held wow. Well, go, going back to the regs, um, so I'm advising DLUC um, or HSC, well, anyway, government on the new future home standard with ACOM and the, the celebrity that is Ian Mordit. Oh, yeah. Um, so we're, we're the consortium, the lucky, uh, I don't know, and Corian Brown, I should mention, so the QS Corian Brown, um, Adam McTavish there. So we, we're the team that is basically advising. I'm doing very little in this. What I'm doing really is advising an architectural role and, and whether something is buildable or not. But we have been role-playing certain scenarios to reduce the performance gap. And it is, again, I'm optimistic about that part of the future home standard consultation. Um, I know various people have been slamming the future homes consultation quite rightly in many ways that that is a very watered down standard from from where we started. Um, But there are two things in that that give me hope. One is that the performance in use is being taken very seriously. And I think I see buy-in from the major house builders on that. They are out of pride, will, will sign up to we deliver what we said we're going to do. We we build what it says on the tin. So I think asking them to go one step and look at, you know, whether it's smetering, so a kind of smart co-heating test, whether it's a performance and use monitoring over a year, and certainly resident feedback might be part of that, you know, and and get them to publish their data on a platform, yeah. on, on um, Homes England website or whatever government platform and regulate that because you need that objective peer review yeah then i think honestly then you you could bring in a bit of social media and you know she says he says type thing yeah yeah exactly. suddenly it's and it could be seen as a comms thing as well you know yeah. we do we we've been doing poe from a comms point of view you know we're probably leading architects in poe we've certainly got four i've probably done 12 13 projects um, post-occupancy of our own projects with energy environmental data and more with resident reviews we've got we've got a decent database now and we've got four existing ones where we're doing that in-depth reviews of residents and energy and environmental monitoring 
And we do that because we get to shout out about it. I know if I've if I get and I can cherry pick the other side. The other side of that is we're not being objective. We're doing POE on our own projects. That's because no one's paying us really. We've got three projects where clients are paying us to do that, but other ones we're doing out of our own. It needs to be regulated. Cost. I mean, it, it should be, be regulated. That there's a Third building party. for yeah. POE, right? Yeah, um, and, exactly. And, uh, and so that so the, the the thing which I guess you're alluding to with this is that you know people will will talk to you about uh, about uh, I had a. Uh, a, a company in the sector in Ireland, uh, heat pump company, reached out to me about a possible about a monitoring study on some buildings with their heat pumps, um, mm-hmm. and I said, "Great, but I, we'll we'll publish something on this, but we want to publish something upfront to say that you're doing it, and, we'll, and to say which buildings are in the study, because we want to know." Mm-hmm. However, it goes. You know, in other mm-hmm. words, third party accountability is huge because there is actually quite a lot of POE going on at the moment. It's just you don't hear about a lot of it. You know, yeah. uh, a lot of people keep it very close to the chest. Private companies won't share, even local authorities that we've done. So we, we're doing stuff for the LLDC. Um, they've just um, done the first phase of their Olympic Park master plan in East London. Uh, it's called Chobham Manor. And they've yeah. they've actually, because it's public money, they've had to release everything. And the reports are out there and we know the flats are overheating. It's a great case study. There's, there's flats overheating left, right and centre in that first phase. And the second phase is the same. So, you know, and there's great stuff about that scheme as well. It's not all negative. Some really yeah. good findings around the landscape and the quality of place and the flats themselves. But, you know, that was... So what did it take to do that? That took a forward-looking local authority client with an educated, uh, this guy was the, the lead client, an ex-architect, highly educated, knows about PO. They set, they got the funding. It was 300,000 to fund this this two years of POE. It took a multidisciplinary team. It was UCL. It was us. It was PRP architects. It was Levitt Bernstein, HJ, and multidisciplinary expert teams go and review this. You know, 50 or 100 residents to interview and then sample of flats. You know, it's a big outfit to kind of get really good data. Yeah. And, you know, that's what it takes. Not like whoever it is, ex-house builder going off and doing a bit of co-heat testing and then not telling anybody about it, which... No, it has to be. Uh, you you know. Have to know. It's, it's analogous to Ben Goldacre's uh, all-trials campaign uh, for, mm. for, for, for medicine. The idea that... Unless exactly. have all, unless the pharmaceutical companies are required to disclose all of the trials that they've started, yeah. um, then you don't know whether your yeah. what your assumptions are built on sand, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I think yeah. government are talking about just to finish this, or at least my thoughts on it. Government are talking about um, very interestingly in this current consultation on Part L of taking building fonts to a good level, so it'll probably be an as-built test of the. Um, um, uh, various metrics, probably the heat loss parameter, um, essentially whole whole house heat loss, um, either for a co-heat test or a smeter version, so data plus um, an algorithm, and they'll require that. Um, sorry, they won't require that. That'll be an op- op- optional thing. And if you do that, you can market yourself as a future home, like future homes brand, government approved stamp done. And so there, there, so there is then the incentive for developers to do the testing and to pay the five hundred quid to have the test, or maybe it's twenty quid or whatever. And they're looking at that as, and that is actually, um, more I think about it, could be this way where, and then you, you obviously have part of that you have to put up your data on this website. It's, it's regulated, it's controlled as a way in to, to rather than just come out, you know, year one, you must do this. I think it would yeah. be quite a nice 
softly softly approach to getting more people to do it because there aren't enough i mean if they did it next year you wouldn't be able there aren't enough testers there aren't you know we can do that talk to google just talk to google or, or apple and get them to build it into everybody iphone you know if <laughs> <laughs> so they put the u2 album on an iphone they can bloody do this you know yeah sorry yeah. <laughs> yeah. right so i think i'm gonna have to call time thank Rapping. you so much yeah I, I will allow no further cans of worms to be opened um so uh join Acan, join the adcb join the igbc ladies check her own space check out lloyd alter's substack carbon up front uh passive house plus it is next issue is that in the works yet jeff well it's always in the works yeah, yeah. advertising it if you can it is a vehicle worth supporting and as we hear everyone use or people within this industry they do use it i had that on an interview this morning by the way jeff how does how do you find out about uh, new products and systems? Oh well, uh, uh first plus <laughs> he right. says semi shamefully. So cheers for that, Andy. Right. Uh, oh, please rate, uh, share all the usual things. You've listened to us for long enough. Do we need to plug anything? You got anything to plug uh, apart from your incoming? No, the oh. guys, the guys done. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't need to plug anything. I'm I'm all good. Post that um, you'll be publishing your research, I'm sure. Yeah, that that research I hope to publish. Check out PTE, but you know, whatever. We're yep. we're Everything all good. Will be, we're there. It'll all be in the show notes. This yeah. is the takeaway <laughs> sale, Dan. This is the takeaway sale. It's 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 where you say you don't want to buy something from me. I don't need I don't need uh, you. <laughs> I'm too busy. Don't don't bother. Don't bother. What's yeah. what's it someone like um if you don't get through on the first attempt try try again you know I, I'm too busy but I'll get back to you next week <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate salesman walk drop the mic I'll be too busy yeah right yeah I think that's it uh hello us if you want to talk about any of this stuff but uh thank you for listening otherwise all right thanks cheers bye thanks bye.